I know you were shocked to hear Rick say that my wife and I have been married for 53 years. I should explain that our marriage was actually arranged when we were toddlers, so we're only in our mid-50s. My nose is not growing, is it? Okay. okay. Um, no, that's not exactly true. Who would have thought that we would have been applauding at, at the reality that we can meet with 15% capacity? Um, you told me that a couple of years ago, I, I would have said, what planet did you fly in from? But it really is wonderful to be here in the same room with many of you, uh, lifting our voices together in praise to the triune God and seeking to hear his word with obedient hearts here together. And, and to think, next week, God willing, I, I will not only see people um, out there, I will actually see that you have faces and not just eyes. Quite amazing, actually. During uh, two summers while I was a seminary student, I, I worked selling Bible study books door to door. Summer of 1971, working in Garland, Texas, suburb of Dallas, I was uh, in the living room in the house showing my, my books to this man of the house. Barely got into the conversation and the sales pitch when he said to me, you're a theological student, I have a question for you. What, what do you think about selling dogs? And I said, I think I've never thought about selling dogs, but I probably would say buy low and sell high. But you probably have more in mind than that. And he said, well, yeah, I think it's morally wrong to sell a dog. I said, really? Why do, you, why do you think that? Well, he said, I'm sure the Bible says it's wrong. And I said, I've never thought about that. Now, I said, this first book I have here, the Knave's Topical Bible, will help us find everything the Bible says about any particular topic. So why don't we look up dog? And so I looked up dog, and sure enough, Deuteronomy 23.18 forbids bringing the price of a prostitute or a dog into uh, the tabernacle as an offering to the Lord, because they're an abomination. I, thought, I said, you know, I've, I've never noticed that. Now, I said that, but that, you know, a prostitute and a dog, that raises lots of questions. So this second book that I have here, the Wycliffe Bible Commentary, this is a one-volume commentary on the whole Bible that, that helps explain the meaning of the passage after the first book helps us find it. So let's look it up. So we look it up, and the commentary points out that in the ancient Near East, the term dog was often used as a, as a pejorative, negative term to describe a male prostitute. So I said, so see, the, this one book helped us find that verse that you didn't know where to find. And, and the second book helps us understand that, that when it says dog, 
It's a figure of speech. It's not actually talking about the four-legged kind that you and I talk about. It's a way of talking about a male prostitute. And he said, I still think it's wrong to sell a dog. And he didn't buy the books either, just to make it really bad. Now, that was a pretty trivial disagreement that he and I had. But not every disagreement is as insignificant. So fast forward to about five years. Now I'm the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church, Bloomington, Indiana. And one day in the mail, I, I get a brochure from the Bill and Graham Evangelistic Association um, advertising the fact that in a few weeks, the, the Bill and Graham Association film, The Hiding Place, about the life of Corey Ten Boom, was, was going to be playing in the College Mall Cinema in Bloomington. Uh, what a fascinating story. So very shortly after that, I was at a, at a meeting of the church board who were called deacons. And, and the deacons said to me, I don't know if you're aware, Pastor, but uh, there's a, a movie called The Hiding Place that's coming to the College Mall Cinema in a few weeks. I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I, I did get a mailing about that. And, and they said, look, we're concerned that number of the people in the church here, especially the newer ones, have an insufficient understanding about personal separation from worldliness. And they're going to be inclined to go see that film. You need to preach a sermon telling them why they ought not go. And I, I said, um, well, you know, I'd have a hard time doing that. because I, I don't think the Bible will take us that far. I... I, it's fair enough to preach biblical truth that says you and I need to think very carefully about the things we expose ourselves to, but this is not the run-of-the-mill show at the College Mall Cinema. So, I, I mean, there's no way I, I can tell everyone they have to make the same decision about going to see the film. I can't preach that sermon. And they said, well, you ought to. So I'm thinking, hmm, okay, if, if, if I go see it, I'm, I'm going to create real, real issues here. Shortly after that meeting, I, I was talking to Melinda, dear friend of ours. Jerry and Melinda were fairly new believers, fairly new in our church. And Melinda said to me, Stan, Jerry and I went to see the most incredible film, The Hiding Place, at the College Mall Cinema. I mean, have you heard about it? And I thought, have I heard about it? And I said, well, yeah, I am, yeah I'm familiar with it. She said, look, you have got to go. So you and Donna find a, find a night when you can go, and, and, and I'll take care of the kids so you can go. You've got to go. And so I, I sort of hemmed and hawed and... and Jerry and Melinda are very bright people. She said, wait, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait a minute. You're not telling me that you couldn't go, are you? And I said, well, you know, 
for a whole lot of reasons. Movies are a sensitive thing and among our tribe, and, you know, it could, could be problematic. And she said, I don't know if we can hang on in a church that would be so narrow that, that you couldn't even go see the hiding place. So I'm thinking, if we go, I'm, I'm, I'm going to create a rift between me and the deacons. If we don't go, I may drive Jerry and Melinda away from our church. So, so what's a pastor to do in a situation like that? Maybe I'll tell you someday what I did. What it will do is direct your attention to the book of Romans, chapter 14, where, where Paul teaches first century believers about how, how we relate to one another when we have actual differences of conviction about what faithful discipleship looks like. So in Romans 14, Paul, Paul begins with, well, let me warn you up front. This, this chapter neatly falls into two halves. And, and so as I work my way through the first half, some of you will love it and some of you will be nervous about it. And in the second half, it all gets turned around. That, that's why preaching is about comforting the disturbed and disturbing the comfortable. Okay, so hang on with me for the whole thing. It will be done by 3 p.m. or something like that. So Paul begins with, accept those whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. He recognizes there are some disputable matters. There are, there are some points on which different believers have a different conviction about what it means to live faithfully. So, I mean, for example, what? Well, verse 2, one person's faith allows them to eat everything, but another person whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. So vegetarianism was an issue. Why, why would that be? Well, probably because some believers, whether Jew or Gentile, might say, look, we, we know what is done with meat sold in the marketplace. We know about meat being offered to idols. How, how can you think about eating meat when you know that it was possibly offered to idols? How can you do that? Whereas other believers are saying, haven't you read the scriptures that say the earth is the Lord and everything it contains? All meat is God's meat, and whatever mumbo-jumbo some other people may have uttered over the meat, offering it to idols doesn't change the meat. It's just meat. We're free to eat it. See, vegetarianism was not taught in Mosaic law, so it's not as if only Jews would, would think this. It could be Jew or Gentile, but some who, whose, whose faith was weaker, that's why Paul describes it, didn't understand the full extent of their liberty, and they said, the only, the only spiritually safe thing to do is only eat vegetables. 
And so they differ. So Paul counsels them in this way in verse 3. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted that person. In other words, the, the, the believers with a stronger grasp of their liberty are going to be prone to despise the people who don't understand their liberty and say, when will they ever grow up? And the ones with the weaker sense of liberty may look at those who are eating the meat and say, obviously, an unfaithful disciple. And Paul says, don't do that. Some are tempted to judge. Others are tempted to despise. Don't do it. But both categories may say, yeah, but... I mean, how, how are they really going to get ahead as a disciple of Jesus in the condition they're in? Well, verse 4, who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master they stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. The Lord is able to, to make them a fruitful disciple, even if they make a different choice. Then in verse 5, he moves to a different issue. Some consider one day more sacred than another. Others consider every day alike. Everyone should be fully convinced in their own mind. Now, now here, we're probably talking about Jewish believers who, who still have a sense that they, that they ought to observe the special holy days of the Mosaic law. Even though they, they may recognize, well, in one sense, that's the old covenant, but still they, they can't avoid the sense that they need to observe those days. Others say, it is the old covenant. The new covenant has come. And so Paul says, everyone, everyone should be convinced in their own mind. And then he says in verse 6, those who regard one day as special do so to the Lord. Those who eat meat do so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And those who abstain do so to the Lord and give thanks to God. The believers who eat meat give thanks for the food they're eating. The believers who are eating their vegetarian meal give thanks for that. People who make different choices, Paul says, on a point like that, it's understandable why they, they come to different conclusions but the fact is, each one can be a faithful servant of the Lord. Those who eat meat, those who don't. Those who observe those days, those who don't. For he says in verse 7, We do not live to ourselves alone, and we do not die to ourselves alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. In other words, all of us are, are accountable, responsible to our master, to our Lord Jesus. And we have to make responsible decisions as those who want to obey him and live faithfully for him. Everything we do in this life and after this life is done in relation to his lordship. 
Whether we live or die, we belong to him. So, verse 10, you then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat your brother or sister with contempt? See, he addresses both, the strong and the weak. Each one of you can sin with the wrong attitude toward the other. For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then we will all give an account of ourselves to God. Every one of us, as a responsible disciple, will have the Lord give the righteous verdict on our choices in the end. So, in, in his first half of the chapter, Paul is saying this, when I think about others, when I think about you, the operative word is liberty. I have to give you space to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, seeking to live faithfully, recognizing that we may come to different conclusions about some of the choices we make. To, to talk about the obvious in our time and place. It's understandable why, why some faithful believers in Jesus would say, God calls the church to meet. And we have to do it even if the government says, don't meet. There are biblical reasons to come to that kind of conclusion. There are others, like me, who say, obviously that's the norm, but Scripture also calls us to be good citizens and defer to government as far as possible, to care about people around us, to preserve the witness of the church. And, and so we come to the conclusion that in unusual times, our pattern may change. Honest difference of opinion among God's people about how we work out the whole Bible. And so we need to hear what Paul says about not judging the other and not despising the other. So in this first half, Paul says, when you think about others, what you need to think is liberty and allow them space to make some different choices from the ones you make. But let's admit, that's a lot easier to say than it is to feel. It's easier to mentally assent to that than it is to, to accept that in practice. I, I remember several years ago, um, my, my wife and I happened, we were away from home on Easter Sunday uh, visiting a, another church. And the pastor in that particular church chose to use Easter Sunday as, as, as the time to launch a new sermon series called Desperate Households. He played a clip from the TV show Desperate Housewives 
which, by the way, I never watched, just so you know. But I saw commercials for it. Now, now, there was nothing vulgar in the clip he played, but to use Easter Sunday as a way of, he, wanted, he thought, well, I have visitors here, I want to attract them, I want to connect them and get them to come back for that series. I, honestly, for me, to use Easter Sunday to focus on something like that and not to focus on the resurrection of our Lord, I just, there's no way I would go there. But at the same time, I have to admit, nothing in Scripture that says you must celebrate Easter Sunday. In fact, I'm grateful that today, not Easter, we sang Christ the Lord is risen today because every Sunday we remember the risen Lord. You don't have to have one special Sunday to do it. The Bible doesn't demand that. So I can't demand that of that pastor. I'm still not comfortable with the choice he made, but I have to give him freedom. So, okay, so Paul says in the first half of the chapter, when you think about others, think liberty. Some of you are rejoicing, some of you are nervous. So now let's turn, turn it on its head. In verse 13, the tone changes. So the first part of the verse, therefore let us stop passing judgment on one another. That sums up the first half. But then he turns the focus. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or a sister. See, now he's saying, when, when, you, when you are thinking not about others, but you're thinking about your choice, the bottom line word is not liberty. Bottom line word is love, which means sometimes restricting liberty. So now he turns back to the, the food issue. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If, if one of your fellow believers says, I just cannot feel right about eating meat, for them to eat meat is wrong. It violates their conscience. And so verse 15, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy your brother or sister for whom Christ died. Back in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul addresses the similar kind of issue. And what he's saying is, if, if using your liberty is likely to cause a brother or a sister to violate their conscience, then you must not use the, your liberty. You must, in love, be willing to restrict your liberty. So, verse 16, therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. That, that isn't the point. Do I eat meat or, or not? I mean, I mean, that's just not the issue. Rather, the kingdom is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Think about the peace and joy of the family of God and what will enhance that, what will make the church an edifying community. And, and so Paul's saying, don't demand the use of your liberty in, in a way that's going to destroy the peace of the church. Rather, verse 19, let us make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Now note, Paul is not saying here, if, if someone somewhere believes that a particular food is wrong, you must not eat it. I, I mean, there's no way that we can agree with everybody. That's the whole point of the chapter. The point is, if, if your use of your liberty in that area is likely to cause someone spiritual harm, then then act in love and don't use your liberty. Simple as that. So verse 22, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. In other words, don't flaunt your liberty. Don't, don't make a point of saying, I've got liberty and you better know I'm going to use it. I don't care what you think about it or how it might affect you. Blessed are those who do not condemn themselves by what they approve, but those who have doubts are condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. In other words, if you violate your conscience, that's sinful. So, so in the second half of the chapter, it all changes. And Paul now says, when you think about others, think liberty. But when you think about yourself, think love, responsibility, and a willingness to restrict your liberty if necessary in order to serve your brothers and sisters, in order to serve the family of God and the common good. There are so many um, ways in which this works itself out in practice. Over the years in, in pastoral ministry, I, in church leadership, I've certainly learned I, I, I need to not only think about what I prefer or even what I think is really best, I need to ask not it, more than just, is it ideally the best, but will it serve God's people in this time and place right now? There, there was a time when, as a guest preacher, I would ask, uh, what Bible translation may I use or should I use? That's really not so much an issue anymore. Now, the more relevant question might be, what should I wear when I come as a guest preacher in your church? Because culture has changed, in case you hadn't noticed. So I, 
I, I mean, so if I think about what to wear here, I just ask myself, well, what does Sam McCallum wear? And, and you know, that provides a guide for me. But if, but if I were preaching at, say, Jarvis Street Baptist Church in Toronto today, I wouldn't be dressed the way I am. In fact, if 15, 20 years ago, if I had dressed the way I'm dressed today, uh, preaching in my church or most churches that I would preach in, it, it would create an issue. It, it would make people think about what's not worth thinking about. And so, so as a pastor, I learned, I, I have to ask what will, what will actually serve these people. It's not just what do I have liberty to do, I don't think there's anything immoral about wearing a golf shirt today uh, as, as the preacher here. I think I've always had the liberty to do it. That doesn't mean it would always be the right choice. I, I remember when I learned this in a powerful way. It's the last year that I was a pastor of Runnymede Baptist Church in Toronto. And um, it was one of those years when uh, Christmas Day and New Year's Day uh, both fell on Sunday. At, at that point in time, we, we had a, a traditional New Year's Eve gathering at the church. I'm not sure if we still called it a watch night service or not, because it actually all started with games in the basement. Uh, it ended with prayer in the worship center, but started with games in the basement. Anyway, we, we had a traditional New Year's Eve gathering as a church past midnight, and, but that fall, a few months in advance of it, I thought about the calendar and I, and I said to the, the board members, you know, this is a good year for us to really assert what's important. What's important is intelligently worshiping God together on Sunday morning. So, I, you know, wouldn't it be the wise thing to do to cancel our New Year's Eve gathering? I mean, why, why ask the people to come and stay out past midnight? I, that was a wise way to go, I'm sure. I still think I was right. But the leader said, ah, yeah, but Stan, you know, it's, it's a real tradition here. The people look forward to it. And, and it became obvious to me, if, if I pushed, use my liberty as the pastor, to push for what I really thought was ideal, it probably was going to create conflict. And so I thought, you know, that's not really a hill to die on. And, and if people come, they're here past midnight, and then who knows how much later they stay up, and they come on Sunday morning, some of them will probably fall asleep while I'm preaching, but that wouldn't be the first time it happened, nor the last time. And so I thought, I mean, why would I, why would I make an issue out of that? Really makes no sense. Did I have the liberty to press my point? Yeah, I did. But it wouldn't have been for the peace and edification of God's people. It would just be for proving my point. So remember, there are two points this chapter, two points to this sermon. 
Because the point of the text is the point of the sermon. When you think about brothers and sisters in Christ, think liberty. When you think about yourself, think love, responsibility, willingness to restrict liberty. That's, that's just not the way we naturally think, is it? It's probably fair to say the way we naturally think is every rational, thoughtful believer would come to the same conclusion I do about the right way to live out biblical principles. And we tend to think, if I have the liberty to do it, I'm going to do it. Paul says, turn it all on its head. It's not the natural human way. It's just the Christ-like way. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you loved us gave your one and only eternal son to become one of us, to live obediently and to give that obedient life in love as a sacrifice for our sins. He loved us, gave up his privileges that he might serve us by giving his life in our place. By the work of your spirit in us now, Teach us what it means to follow Christ in that way and enable us by your Spirit to not only know it, but to do it. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.